<laughs> Let's have a little scream. Just Everybody join in. Breathe in. And <laughs> 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 out. And out. Don't you feel better? Wasn't that cathartic? It felt great to me. The cats didn't love it so much. (laughs) (laughs) He retreated to the other room. Mm -hmm. I'm getting out of here. Welcome back to Saints and Witches. I'm Sarah. I'm a heretic. I'm Liz. I'm half asleep. Welcome to our show. This is a show where Liz and I tell each other stories about saints and witches. And... We pronounce everything wrong. We do our best, though. We try really hard, which is kind of sad. (laughs) For how bad we fuck up in the end. Yes. Right. And I decided to be um, very... I didn't even reread my story. So not only do I not know how to pronounce anything, I don't even know what I wrote. So this should be... I wrote this in pure delirium at like 4 (laughs) a.m. Could barely see my screen through the haze (laughs) of my heavy eyes. Oh my god. (laughs) Well, you know what they say. It could be fucking nonsense. We're gonna find out. We are. And with that, let's just jump right in. Let's do it. So my internet has been out for half of this month. It is kind of working today. Um, and I haven't slept more than like two to three hours a night in several weeks because I'm hypomanic right now. So well, you look lovely. <laughs> you're a liar. <laughs> no, I'm not. Your bangs are so cute. And I like your sweater. <laughs> it's my emotional support sweater. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, this will not be a long story because I don't know how long my internet will last. I only have so much data on my phone if I need to make a Zoom call with it. And I truly cannot focus right now. Mm-hmm. So picture it. 1581 Germany. <laughs> I'm there. <laughs> I know. I painted the scene so well. <laughs> Um, we are pre-Poppenheimer trial, pre-Bomberg trials, and pre-Furzburg trials, um, which all happened in the early 1600s and were covered in previous episodes on this podcast. Do I have those episode numbers for you? I do not, because we have so many now. It is such a hassle to scroll back through and find out. I know, but good news. We're working on, I'm working on, <laughs> I'm not working on it yet, but I will be working on a listening guide for those and who I, are new to the podcast. I'm excited because then I will remember what the fuck I've talked about over the last three years. Exactly. Me too. Um, do, 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 do. All of the German trials that I've covered have been super duper fascinating and also super depressing. Um, I recommend them. Germany has a lot of torture, but you also get really unique victim registers and that letter that was smuggled out of prison that was really, really cool. Yeah. Um, Of the four big German trials, though, the set I'm discussing today, the Trier trials, are the earliest 
Um, cool. The Colda trials are the only ones I haven't touched so far. Will I ever get to them? The world may never know. <laughs> I think I accidentally mentioned them in one episode. Um, I I don't even know what we've discussed anymore. It's been so many years, Sarah. It's been so many years. I know. I'm sorry. The hours and hours and hours of this. I know. Of our voices. I say affectionately. Uh-huh. Um, the Trier trials, as one can imagine, took place in Trier. Uh, mm-hmm. But Trier at this time is a weird Venn diagram of the electorate of Trier and the archdiocese of Trier. Um, the territories don't have matching boundaries. They do that weird thing where they just overlap in weird places. Okay. I really love that because it makes it so easy to figure out what the fuck is going on where. <laughs> yes. I love that they mixed uh, like the government and religion together. Well, we still have that. <laughs> we do. But it is so heavy-handed in uh, the Holy Roman Empire. Oh, yeah. Big time. Um, the reason we drop into Trier in 1581 and the reason the witch trials begin then is because that year a new archbishop and elector is elected. A man named Johann von Schunenberg. He was elected the governor of Trier the year prior, and um, this means he kind of holds like secular and ecclesiastical power at various levels and has held it at various levels for years. He is the rector of a university and an ordained priest. I don't think he becomes a priest until after he becomes like the archbishop and everything, which is so funny to me that he spent so long working in the church, gets elected to one of the highest offices, and then he's like, ah, might as well become a priest. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that that would happen anymore. <laughs> like, I think you did that backwards. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, he spent most of his life studying and working up a ladder of church positions. And it was kind of interesting to see his church positions because a lot of people, it's like these really official, um, like, idols that they just kind of pop up into. And him is like, and I was in charge of maintenance at the church. And then I was in charge of this at the church. And then mm. I was in charge of this at the church. Whoa. Like, he just literally worked himself up from, like, associate to manager in the cathedral. Wow. American dream. And then, and then out of the cathedral, let him go. Yeah. Um, he's not a good person. Do not look up to him. This oh, cap- fuck. This, this man is capital O obsessed with the Jesuit order, apparently. Oh, boy. Um, And I get how that translates into him building them a college, but I do not get how that translates into him committing genocide. (laughs) Ooh. Well, the Jesuits kind of do that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Sometimes they do it accidentally. Sometimes they do it on purpose. Those little nerds. Yeah. Um, this dude is straight up like, you know what will prove my convictions and my love to the Jesuits? Um, I'm going to root out Protestants, Jews, and witches, and I'm going to kill them. Oh, neat. Yes. Um, he gives his support to the community to go after these three groups of um, people, which is one of the reasons that um, the trials take off is they have like this public support and backing. Yikes. We get our most colorful description of the chaos that unfolded in Trier from an eyewitness, a canon named Lyndon, who writes in the 
and I'm using the English version because I can't pronounce the Latin version, Deeds of the Trivians, which is a collection of monks' records on Trier that spans a couple of centuries. Oh, that's cool. And now I'm going to quote something and stumble over it a whole bunch, and we're not going to talk about it. <laughs> okay, yes. Inasmuch as it was popularly believed that the continued sterility, bad crops, etc., 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 of many years was caused by the witches through the malice of the devil, the whole country rose to exterminate the witches. This movement was promoted by many in office who hoped wealth from the persecution. And so from court to court throughout the towns and villages of all the dioceses scurried special accusers, inquisitors, notaries, jurors, judges, constables, dragging to trial and torture human beings of both sexes and burning them in great numbers. Scarcely any of those who were accused escaped punishment, nor were there spared even the leading men in the city of Trier. For the judge with two burgomasters, several counselors and associate judges, canons of sundry collegiate churches, parish priests, rural deans were swept away in this ruin. So far at length did the madness of the furious populace and of the courts go in this thirst for blood and booty that there was scarcely anybody who was not smirched by some suspicion of this crime. Meanwhile, notaries, copyists, and innkeepers grew rich. The executioner rode a blooded horse like a noble of the court and went clad in gold and silver. His wife vied with noble dames in the richness of her array. The children of those convicted and punished were sent into exile. Their goods were confiscated. Plowmen and vintner failed. Hence came sterility. A dire pestilence or a more ruthless invader could hardly have ravaged the territory of Trier than this inquisition and persecution without bounds. Many were the reasons for doubting that all were really guilty. This persecution lasted for several years, and some of those who presided over the administration of justice gloried in the multitude of the stakes, at each of which a human being had been given to the flames. At last, though the flames were still unsated, the people grew impoverished. Rules were made and enforced, restricting the fees and costs of examinations and examiners, and suddenly, as when war funds failed, the zeal of the persecutors died out. Wow. That was really good. I did my best. Um, I think it does a really good job of describing what's going on. You you get to see everything. It mm-hmm. it covers the fires. It definitely casts a lot of judgment, um, which is one of the reasons that I like the description is there are descriptions of other trials where they're like, it was really bad, but, but wait, who wrote that? A monk? Um, it said a canon named a canon. Lincoln. Yeah. That's like after all of this happened. Yeah. It's, okay. It calls him an eyewitness, but says that he wrote this years later. And I couldn't mm. find a year attached to it. I could just see that it was part of this um, collection of records that spanned a really long time. And I did not want to dedicate a significant amount of time to sifting through these records to figure out exactly where his sat. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. That was really good, though. That was cool. Um, I know that I've read like personally have read the description of the executioner before being like decked out like a nobleman. Mm. Um, I just didn't realize it was attached to this trial, but it is a picture that kind of stays in your mind. Yeah. 
The Trier Witch Trial stretched from 1581 to 1593, so 12 years. And in those years, the trials executed estimated 368 German citizens of various ages, sexes, and socioeconomic statuses. Um, there is a note that they managed to kill every woman except one in two separate villages. Oh so my god. Two villages with two women left. Jesus. Um, as well as another note that 108 of the victims were of nobility. Whoa. Other than Yeah. Other than torture, a common thread in German trials is how, like, across the board the victim pool winds up being, which is really rare as far as witch trials go. And it's one of the reasons I circle back to Germany a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, there's just a lot of diversity in what's happening, and it leaves a lot of room for some really crazy shit to happen sometimes. Yeah, it's not just, like, the lowest of the low people in society. I think, yeah, Germany is super interesting during the Counter-Reformation because the peasants are, like, freaking out in a good mm-hmm. way. Like, they should be freaking out, you know? Yes, Um I very much, uh, I shouldn't enjoy, like, mass execution across. <laughs> we, wait, we shouldn't? No, um, but it is kind of nice to see the murder spread around and not just so singularly focused on, like, uh, midwives or Mm -hmm. those Catholics who lived in that one itty-bitty part of England. (laughs) Yeah. Everybody gets a taste. (laughs) (laughs) We all suffer together. Right. Um, there are two victims of the Trier trials you'll find mentioned at length if you look the trials up. I really wanted to find a register of other victims because if we have something as spe- specific as 368, then there has to be a record somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did not come across it. Yeah. And I didn't want to dig. Mm-hmm. One of the victims is Dr. Dietrich Flade a deputy governor of the city of Trier and a secular court judge. By 1587, he finds himself on the other side of his bench in the courtroom, having been too vocal about his doubts regarding the authenticity of confessions elicited by torture. Um, This is a period of time where you are not allowed to go against the grain in like any way, shape or form. Mm -hmm. It because again, because Germany, because absolutely nobody is like a protected class at this point, like anything goes. Yikes. Um, surprise, surprise that Flade is arrested in 1588 and accused of being a sorcerer. He does escape imprisonment alongside a man named Johann von Eltz, but Eltz actually brings brings Flade back into custody a week later, like a traitor, saying that he didn't know he was helping a warlock. Oh, Jesus Christ. Uh, Personally, I think he just got cold feet. He was like, ah, man, I'm going to get in so much fucking trouble if he tells people I helped him. Mm -hmm. You know what? I'll just put us both back in jail. It'll be like we never left. (laughs) Oh, no, honey. (laughs) It does not work that way. No. Um, Flade is placed under house arrest, formally arrested a few months later, and he is tortured into confession, ironically. Yep. 
In September 1589, he is strangled and then burned. And for anyone new to the show, this is standard procedure for burnings. Live burnings were extremely rare. Mm -hmm. More humane to be strangled. Yeah, it's horrendous to think about. Like, which, which would I rather have? Would I rather be strangled or would I rather be burned alive? Um, you would rather be dropped from a platform and have your neck broken. That's what you really want. Some people I get that. It, yeah. Some people if get strangled. Go, yeah. I want to go out like the witch who got the gunpowder tied to her neck and then set on fire. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that was cool. Not cool, but it was it was unique. I want to go out as fast as possible. Mm-hmm. And I want to get everybody messy in the process. <laughs> right. I want to be exploded. I want to be a burden, okay? I want to I actually want to go out like Guy Fox. I want to just trip <laughs> and break my neck and not even be actually executed. I want John Johnson. It's <laughs> like John Johnson do a swan dive off the platform. <laughs> And just take myself out before they rip my dick off. <laughs> um, the second victim you'll see attached to the Trier trials is a man named Cornelius Luce. Cornelius or Neil, if you will, because Cornelius is a mouthful. Sure. Um, he gets a lot of attention because he's the first, first Catholic priest to step up and write publicly condemning these witch trials. Um, he moved to Trier in 1585, so four years into the trials. Um, and he promptly says, fuck to the no to mm-hmm. all of this, mm-hmm. whatever this is going on here. <laughs> I don't like it. There's a lot of finger waving listeners. There is. Whatever this is. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like it. <laughs> Well, in true Christian fashion, he writes a bunch of strongly worded letters. And that's mm-hmm. not a jab. That is just a reoccurring theme on this show. When right. Christians get angry, they write letters at each other. Okay? Yes, that's true. I think a lot of things could have been avoided if they had just fought in the street. <laughs> <laughs> the two priests, the two popes, when there yes. was the schism. <laughs> just they rolled just up their sleeves. Anyway, uh, Neil contacts the authorities in the city going like full heron mode about the murders. Um, and when the authorities brush him off, he says, you know, fuck it. I will just write about you guys and what you're doing in a book and I will publish your crimes for all of the world to see. Fuck you. Nice. Um, he, attempl- he attempts to publish this manuscript, True and False Magic or... On true and false witchcraft, it's translated differently, um, in 1592, but it catches the eye of one Peter Binsfield. I don't know if I've ever mentioned him before on the show, but he's a name that I see pop up in my research on occasion. Um, He's a theologian who wrote a treatise called On the Confessions of Warlocks and Witches, which defends the use of torture. Um, Torture does nothing. Like, it... It just makes people more truthful. It's like, it doesn't. (laughs) Um, All right. (laughs) You want to test it? (laughs) How about you try it? He also published an influential list of demons during this time period. Um, And I I know that at least in part, um, it ties like the seven deadly sins to certain demons. Oh, interesting. 
another reason that his name is known. Right. Um, anywho, anywhoozle, um, (laughs) (laughs) Peter, an ecclesiastical authority in Trier, as well as a deputy to Johann von Schunenberg, more of the, no fingers and multiple buys. Mm-hmm. He is not happy about Neil's manuscript at all. It is seized and Neil is arrested. And I think the saddest part of this whole story and the biggest injustice is that Neil is forced to sit down and write a very long, um, like recantation of all of his beliefs and then recite it on his knees in front of an assembly of church officials. Oh no, poor guy. Yeah, it's a depressing image to me, this priest who just wanted to help, you know, publicly kneeling and embarrassing himself by discrediting the core values that he still has. Like, it's really hard for me as a person to lie. Like, it makes my tummy hurt. Mm -hmm. Um so the thought of having to sit in front of people and just lie about things that I care very, very deeply about on top of that. Yeah. I don't know. It, and especially, it, like, to be, like, going against the grain and, like, putting yourself in danger by saying what you actually believe and then having to just take it all back. But you don't you really mean it. On the floor like a dog while yeah. you do it. I mean, I believe it. It makes sense. I mean, that's what they did to Joan of Arc, basically, too. I hate it so much. It's pretty gross. Mm Mm-hmm. We have a copy of Neil's recantation preserved by Neil's arch nemesis, I guess. I Mm. didn't know he had one of those (laughs) until I got to the end of his story. Um, But it's the Jesuit Bishop Martin Del Rio, who hated the fuck out of Mm. um, neil no idea why what the beef there is this is a preservation of neil's recantation by his arch nemesis um it can be kind of confusing said out loud so i do recommend going to read it i'm just going to read the beginning of it and then summarize the rest of it i cornelius lucius cadilius born at the town of gouda in holland but now on account of a certain treatise on true and false witchcraft, rashly and presumptuously written without the knowledge and permission of the superiors of this place, shown by me to others, and then sent to be printed at Cologne, arrested and imprisoned in the imperial monastery of St. Maximum near Trier by order of the most reverend and most illustrious lord, the papal nuncio Octavius Bishop of Tricarico. Whereas I am informed of a surety that in the aforesaid book and also in certain letters of mine on the same subject sent clandestinely to the clergy and town council of Trier and to others for the purpose of hindering the execution of justice against witches, male and female, are contained many articles which are not only erroneous and scandalous, but also suspected of heresy and smacking of the crime of treason, as being seditious and foolhardy against the common opinion of theological teachers and the decisions and bulls of the supreme pontiffs. And contrary to the practice and to the statutes and laws of the magistrates and judges, not only of this archdiocese of Trier, but of other provinces and principalities, I do therefore revoke, 
condemn, reject, and repudiate the said articles in the order in which they are here subjoined. Use Louise. It's a mouthful. Um, I will not read all 16 things he is forced to condemn his own opinions that he has stated. Some are lengthy and some aren't relevant. I think there's like a hagiography or something that's mentioned at one point. He is like, that's bullshit. And they're like, we're just going to go ahead and get it out of the way that you're a fucking liar just while we're here. (laughs) Whoa. Um, In essence, he's forced to say he falsely branded certain officials tyrants, and he apologizes to them. And he has to tackle points that he made in his manuscript about misinterpretation of thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. What a witch is and what about them is all made up bullshit. Um, They can't sleep with the devil, that humans and demons can't make contracts, etc., 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 Um, I think point five of the 16 points sums up Neil's thoughts and attitudes the best. Quote, I revoke and condemn, moreover, the following conclusions of mine to wit, that there are no witches who renounce God, pay worship to the devil, bring storms by the devil's aid, and do other things. Uh, But that all of these things are dreams, end quote. Um, which is kind of revolutionary because it feels like a very modern opinion on witchcraft from a Catholic priest in the 1500s. He's like, there's no such thing as like these people who reject God and worship the devil and Mm -hmm. do all of this magical bullshit that you claim. Like, it's just not true. Uh, But I was a liar when I said those things. I guess. Uh No, he's definitely ahead of his time. Also this like, Oh, like witches can can they do the storms and can they fuck the it's so Thomas Aquinas, like he it's just the yes. specter of Thomas Aquinas haunting us. Yes. The so much of like the early theological stuff is them just picking and choosing what witches can and can't do mostly to fit the lore of Christianity. Right. Of like well, if God has the power and he's omnipotent, then how can the devil and how can witches and da-da-da-da-da how mm-hmm. any of the power that they do? All right, let's get really weird and let's all debate it and get really fucking technical. And Cornelius steps in. He's like, consider there's no such thing. Mm-hmm. And they're like, we'll kill you. Yeah. He's like, I'm not even going to debate the finer points. Like, there's just no such thing. It's all bullshit. None of it exists. Right. Poor guy. Neil escapes execution. I call him a but he escapes execution um, just because, like, he slandered, like, so fucking heavily in Mm. this trial. Um, And his arch nemesis, Bishop Del Rio, desperately wants to see him die. So he stays on his ass four years following this, conducting constant persecution of Neil. Um, Neil is rearrested for relapsing after his recantation several times. So anytime yeah. it seems like he's even slightly slipped up, they're like, oh, back to jail you go. Oh my god, they're obsessed with him. Bishop Del Rio especially. So again was not killed but absolutely did not escape unscathed yeah from his brush with the trials Mm -hmm. um 
Neil dies in 1595, so just a couple of years later of the plague in Brussels. Um, And Bishop Del Rio is very loud about his displeasure that Neil had the audacity to die before Del Rio could get him executed. (laughs) (laughs) Like, he wants everyone to know. Oof, what a man of God. What a lovely... I know, and um, one of the things, whenever I say you should go read, like, the full confession, of um cornelius's like since it's being written down being preserved by his nemesis like he does have like little introduction stuff where he's very fucking snide the whole Mm. time like and this person who dealt with cornelius he shall be blessed blah 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 just he's an amazing person Mm -hmm. just just all anything that he can shove in there to be like fuck you mm-hmm. to Cornelius. It's like, come on, man. I love Dude, that. I love that point. in the like legal records when you can tell like people hate each Great other. <laughs> Great fucking up. They're, They're humans. So it's so bitchy. <laughs> mm-hmm, so bitchy. So Del Rio is responsible for the preservation of Neil's like public shaming um, while Neil's manuscript was lost. But in a bit of a miracle, it was rediscovered 300 years later in the late 1800s, hmm. tucked away namelessly in a Jesuit library. Um, and it was discovered by American professor George Lincoln Burr, who authenticated the document, kind of comparing it with uh, like other writings and stuff at the time. Um, and uh, people that Cornelius would have like a been a disciple of, followed, been influenced by. I'm going to copy his preserved at Cornell University, where Burr worked. That's he was cool. a professor and I think a librarian. Mm-hmm. Those librarians, they're always finding they're the juicy stuff. Much. Over in fucking Germany, <clears throat> digging through their Jesuit libraries, being like, I found these 300 year old manuscripts. And the Germans are like, it's been here the whole time. <laughs> right under our noses. <laughs> I love a hidden lost manuscript. It's so delicious. Yes. So um, I would love to find even a sliver of that on the internet somewhere. Mm hmm. So then I could read it. Um, The Trier Witch Trials, through close proximity and pamphlet circulation and bad timing, um, influenced the Copenhagen Trials of 1590, which I don't think I've ever directly covered, but I mentioned them a lot when I told the stories um, of the North Barrack Trials, which are super connected. Mm -hmm. Um, The the North Barrack Trials are split between two separate episodes. So that's that's some other um, homework for you listeners mm-hmm. um you will find so many connections between witch trials when you start looking and it's troubling sometimes to be like oh the person who started this witch trial is the brother-in-law of the person who started this one which is next to the town where this witch trial happened mm-hmm. which had the same king where this other one and it's just literally you could trace a path through everyone yeah it's kind of it's very scary how they spread like that yes the more you look at all the twisted little web of connections the more you understand how the trials swept through europe so widely and for so long like they were not these self-contained little 
things. Right. It, they are just an absolute mess. Um, but that more or less, sorry, it's so bare to the bones, is the story of the trials in Trier. I liked Cornelius and I liked that you called him Neil because <laughs> it made me picture Neil Young with like a guitar <laughs> and a harmonica and like really long hair. But in my <laughs> but in but as a priest. A priest with yeah. long hair and a guitar. <laughs> I like I'm it. loving it. Yeah. That was good. It was sad, but it was good. I love a bitchy Jesuit story. I've, there's so many. <laughs> I know. Mm-hmm. I was going to tell one, but then I didn't want to talk about a man. Ah, uh, thank you for the break you're about <laughs> to give me. Yes, so I picked something else. <laughs> So, yeah, I didn't want to talk about a man. Um, you were like, Germany, Jesuits. And I was like, totally, except no Jesuits. <laughs> um, because they're just a big old sausage fest, and I'm tired of them. <laughs> they are, though. Yeah, they hate women. So instead, I'm going to talk about the golden age of the German monastery of Helfta. Um, which in the 13th century was simultaneously home to four women who are very important to the history of the church. Three of them were mystics who wrote books, and two of them also became saints. So, I need to give a huge, huge shout-out to the book The Women of Helfta, Scholars and Mystics by Mary Finnegan. When I say I need to give a book a huge shout-out, it means I'm going to do a book report. (laughs) Like this um, was I love book reports. <laughs> this was my main source. I'm not ashamed to admit it. <laughs> this is a great book. Um, highly recommend. Um, so who were these women and what was going on in this very special convent? I'll start with the founding of the convent and then we'll talk semi-chronologically about the four women who were the abbess Gertrude of Hackeborn. Lots of good names coming up. Her younger sister, Mechtild of Hackeborn, Mechtild's good friend, Gertrude the Great, and finally, the Begin Mechtild of Magdeburg. So, two Mechtilds and two Gertrudes. <laughs> this is not going to be confusing at all. <laughs> it should be super fun and chill <laughs> to keep track of. <laughs> I'm going to do my best. I have like little nicknames for each of them. I'll be like Begin Mechtild or like Abbas That's Gertrude. So, definitely what I do. So, we'll figure it out. Yeah. Um, so the monastery of Helfta was and is, it's actually still functioning, a Benedictine slash Cistercian nunnery in the city of Eisleben. That city is in the German state of Saxony Anhalt. The convent was founded in 1229 and it was originally located on the grounds of Mansfeld Castle nearby. Um, the land was donated by Count Burkhard of Mansfeld, and the convent was founded by his wife, Elizabeth of Schwartzburg. Um, and literally right from the beginning, this convent is special because of the women who live in it. Like, that's kind of the lore of the convent, is we have these very special sort of women who are living here who are making this place, like, holy. Um So Elizabeth, the wife of the founder, 
she lives there after her husband dies. And this one time she goes on pilgrimage to Marburg, to the shrine of St. Elizabeth of Hungary, who is her namesake. Um, I talked about Elizabeth in episode 25, which I think is honestly one of our best episodes. You talked about Katerina Kepler. It was a delight. Um, Anyway, the foundress of the convent goes to Marburg, where she encounters this like little boy at the shrine. And his dad is like, hey, can you take my son to go see the shrine, like to go up and like pray in front of it? Because I got errands to run. Um, So she's holding this little boy's hand. Um, He doesn't seem to have any eyes, the little boy. They're covered with skin. It's rather gross and creepy. Um, So Elizabeth leads him to the shrine. And the story goes that she asks St. Elizabeth to cure the boy. And she suddenly hears a crackling sound, quote unquote, as of parchment tearing. And the boy's eyes are opened. Um, I just and his that. dad comes back and is like, "What the fuck did you do? What the fuck did you do to him? I liked him the way he was. <laughs> That's the last time I let anyone babysit my child. <laughs> he came back with eyes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I could not leave that story out. I read it and I was like, "It's not super relevant. I'm leaving it in. I don't care." It's so um, interesting, though, because just imagining being, like, the blind child and your dad is just like, well, groceries are more important than God. Here, go, go with this mystery, lady. Mm-hmm. <laughs> See you in 20. And then he's like, whoa, 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 what? <laughs> I have eyes now? Hello. Um, Yeah, so that's who founded the convent. The nuns of Helfda moved several times over the course of a few decades before finding, finally ending up in Eisleben. It was not an easy, breezy time. Um, the convent was always in debt. It was robbed and attacked a lot. Um, things got very hairy during the Great Interregnum period from 1250 to 1273. Because the girlies were fighting, the lords of the area um, <clears throat> hated each other. Um, and the convent would get caught in the crossfire because... The nuns who lived there, um, a lot of them belonged to different noble families. So, like, you're like, oh, my sister lives here. So, like, I should be in charge of this land. And it's like, well, my grandma founded it. So, like, fuck you. Um, stuff like that. Um, on one occasion, Gebhardt of Mansfeld, whose sister and cousin lived at the convent, invaded it drunkenly and caused a bit of a scene um, for which he was excommunicated. <laughs> um, but because of family ties, his widow still bullied the nuns into letting him be buried on monastery grounds. Um, and his sister was even elected abbess a few years after the incident. So it's like, it's a lot of family politics and bad behavior by rich people. It would be such a funny grave to walk past, though. Like, remember that dude who got really drunk that one time? <laughs> and he ate meat on Good Friday when he was there. It was a scandal. He would have been such a fun grave to visit. <laughs> right. They're like, um, and we usually clean all the graves on Saturdays, but not that one. This one we're just going to let rot. <laughs> <laughs> um... Where was I? 
So I guess one more important thing to know about Helfta is that it followed the rule of St. Benedict and it had a Cistercian flavor, which are like Benedictines on crack, but the convent itself didn't really answer to anyone because the Cistercian order had forbidden um, female religious organizations from adopting their rule, like from being like a... um, what am I trying to say here? What have, what have I got here? <laughs> <laughs> the Cistercian order was like, no, we can't have any female chapters. But if a group of women who are unaffiliated with the order would like to adopt our rules, then that's their business. So they're not officially anything, which is good for them because they don't answer to anyone. Mm. The abbess is the authority. Um, the Golden Age of Helfta began in 1251 with the election of Gertrude of Hackeborn as abbess. Gertrude was born very close by in Halberstadt in 1232, so she was only 19 when she became abbess, but she held the position for 40 years. She was noble, she was a member of the Thuringian Hackeborn dynasty, and she came to the abbey at a very young age. We don't know exactly what age. <clears throat> During her time as abbess, the nuns in the convent were extremely well-educated, and the monastery became a cultural center. Um, because of Helfta's proximity to the Dominican convents of Halle, just a guess, and Magdeburg, the Dominicans were the most frequent preachers at Helfta. Um, so the preachers weren't like coming to the convent and like making sure the sisters were like following the rules and stuff. They just came to preach, basically. Um, in twelve seventy eight, the general chapter of the Dominicans had imposed the teachings of Thomas Aquinas on the order. <laughs> They had forced Thomas Aquinas onto everybody. So (laughs) (laughs) the content of the teachings that the nuns were exposed to from the preachers was basically all Thomas Aquinas all the time, which is like a bit much to think about. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But obviously there's a lot more to Benedictine monastery life than just listening to preachers. There was a lot of manual labor gardening, spinning, singing, cooking, and cleaning. Um, In all these women's writings, there's this undercurrent of domesticity happening. Um, Convents also, because of their noble patronage, would have to host people a lot, like that asshole I talked about earlier. Um, Like the Count of whatever, who paid for last year's wine, would come and stay, and the nuns would like have to take care of him and stuff. Um, But basically, day in and day out, it was women living, working, praying, and studying together in community. Gertrude of Hackeborn was said to be a very hardworking, kind, and gentle abbess during her 40-year rule. Um, A tract published about her after her death said that, quote, her affectionate kindness toward all the sisters was so great that an observer could hardly discover which sisters were related to her, unquote. Her actual sister, Mechtild, who we'll talk about in a little while, said that, quote, she was gentle and indulgent with the little ones, 
holy and discreet with the young, wise and kind with the old. Seems like everybody liked her. No one's talking shit. Um, She died after an illness which lasted about five months. It was called minor apoplexy. She probably had a stroke. She was very annoyed during her illness. She hated being, like, waited on. Um, There's this kind of sad moment where she's, like, (laughs) on her bed, her sick bed, and she's like, oh, well, the sisters forgot to send someone to bring me to come to Mass. Oh, well. (laughs) I hate my life. (laughs) I hate it here. I wish I was dead, but it's fine. (laughs) It's very relatable. Um, Illness and caregiving are a big theme in the story of this monastery. The women sort of like take turns being ill and annoyed at their illnesses and like annoyed with each other, but like trying their best. Um, And they're sort of glorifying their suffering at the same time, and they're glorifying caregiving. It's a lot going on. Gertrude of Hackeborn didn't have any mystical visions that we know of, but it was under her direction that the convent became home to three of the most famous female mystics of the medieval period. And one of them was her little sister, whom we will meet in a little while. But first, I want to take a detour and talk a bit about the Beguine Mechtild of Magdeburg. I think I've mentioned her offhand in a previous episode or two. This section about her is going to be a bit short, unfortunately, because we know very few biographical details about her. Um, most of the information comes from writing about her um, after her death and some from her book that she wrote called The Flowing Light of the Godhead or The Flowing Light of the Divinity. Um, But that's not really about her. It's more about the visions that she received. So um, basically, all we know is that she was born around 1207 and she died around 1282. She was a Saxon noblewoman. Um, She writes in her book that when she was 12 years old, she received what she calls her first greeting from the Holy Spirit. Um, The so-called greeting repeated every day for 31 years, um, and every day it filled her with these overwhelming emotions. Um, The whole spectrum, sorrow, fear, joy, love. Um, At the age of 23... She left her family to join a Beguine community in Magdeburg, the capital city. Um, If this is your first time hearing the term Beguine and you're like, what the fuck is that? Check out episode 27. Anyway, she lived in this community for 40 years. Um, She writes in her book, quote, All during my youth, I warred against my body with mighty blows. Sighs, tears, confessions, fasts, vigils, disciplines, and constant prayer. These were the weapons of my soul, and with them I vigorously conquered my body. Then for twenty years I was weary, ill, and weak, first from repentance and sorrow, then from holy desire and spiritual striving. Much bodily illness followed. Um, When Mechtild became too ill to continue living and working in the community of Beguines, she went to live at Helfta Abbey. So she, like, retired there. Um, And she would have been 
65. <laughs> so like right on time. She was collecting that social security. <laughs> <laughs> um, the nuns that helped her knew who she was when she came to stay. She was kind of a minor celebrity um, because of her book and how long she had worked in the community. Um, they thought she was cool. Shortly after arriving at the Abbey, an illness caused her to go blind, which was very annoying to her. Um, she wasn't despairing or anything about it. She was like, fuck, like, how am I going to make myself useful here? Like, I'm already really sick. Like, I'm so tired. And now I can't even fucking see. <laughs> what am I supposed to do? Um... But the younger nuns were always coming to her for advice and to ask her to pray for them. Um, She writes that it made her uncomfortable. Um, She would say, like, my German isn't very good. I don't know Latin. I'm not smart enough to be, like, a teacher. I'm not particularly... She's like, I'm not funny. I'm not cool. I'm not, like, like a normal lady. Um, She just seems, like, very humble and very tired. (laughs) she died in 1282 and on her deathbed was basically like thank god i'm out of here because if i would have stuck around longer y'all would have realized i'm like nothing special i'm just like a basic bitch sinner i kin this woman (laughs) (laughs) she's really funny she's like i don't know these languages i can barely read I'm not even sure why I'm here, honestly. Exactly. She's like, I'm just kind of waiting it out till I die. Um, Maxfield of Magdeburg is sometimes referred to as a saint, but she was never actually canonized. The Beguines usually aren't. They're kind of freaky. Um, so let's talk about the other Mechtild next. Mechtild of Hackeborn, who is the younger sister of Gertrude the Abbess. When Mechtild of Hackeborn was born... In 1241, she was so weak that her parents worried that she would die unbaptized. So they rushed her to the parish priest who baptized her, but then told her parents, like, what's the rush? Like, no worries. This baby is going to be fine. She's going to live a long life. And she, she, quote unquote, will become a holy nun in whom God will work many wonders. Um... And I quoted there from the Book of Special Grace, which was a book of the visions and revelations Mechtild received throughout her life. Um, The book was compiled against her will by two of her nun friends, one of whom was probably Gertrude the Great, whom we'll meet later. So a few years before Gertrude of Hackeborn became abbess of Helfda, her mother brought her younger sister Mechtild to visit her at the convent. The story goes that little seven-year-old Mechtild was so happy to be there that she refused to leave. Um, Her mom was like, okay, time to go. And she, this little girl just took turns, like, begging each sister to, like, convince her mom to let her stay. (laughs) She's like, no, don't let her take me, please. And um, the mom was finally like, you know what? Just stay. (laughs) (laughs) It's not worth it. You know what? Whatever. Yes. (laughs) I've got dinner on the stove, so I need to go. Um, So her mom just left her there. And she soon also became a nun at Helfda. 
From writings about her and her own thoughts that she dictated, it seems like her older sister being Abbas didn't really factor into how people saw her. Who knows how true that actually is? That's like such a wild claim to make about the 13th century. Um, But she was apparently very useful. She didn't just sit around being like, oh, my sister would never make me do this and stuff like that. Um, She was a hard worker. She was very sociable and approachable. She was also kind of a ditz, um, (laughs) quite absent-minded. One story about her goes that the nuns were hosting visitors for dinner and um, everyone knew that Mechtild was abstaining from meat that day because of a fast. Like, she had told everybody, like, oh, I'm not eating meat today. Like, don't even ask. Like, um, but when one of the visitors put a piece of meat in front of her, she just kind of, like, automatically ate it and didn't realize. So this reminded me of a friend from undergrad who, like, is still one of the smartest people I know, but just was so, like, always in such a deep thought that she would literally walk into the road. Like, <laughs> like anyone who didn't know her might think that she was ditzy. But if you knew her, you knew that her mind was just like working over time. And she was unaware of what was going on physically around her. So that's the vibe I get from Mechtild of Hackaborn. She eventually became the Domna Cantrix, which means Lady Chantress. Um, what the fuck is that? The nuns did a lot of singing or chanting. Every day they would chant the entire Psalter, like hundreds of psalms in a row. This would often be done in the dark, so there was no, like, reading along. Um, The leader, the chantress, would have to know all the psalms by heart in order. So it was a very difficult job, but Mechtild had a gift for it. She had a beautiful voice and would often be sort of transported by the music. Um, She was a choir girly, for sure. It seems like she sort of viewed God through the lens of music, or at least music was for her the most direct way to praise God. So she was really affected when music was like perverted or corrupted in any way. Like she would hate rap. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Um, there's this anecdote of one carnival season. She could hear the sort of like depraved songs that people were singing in the streets, like this slutty little songs people were chanting. And she was so upset by it that she covered her bed in broken glass and slept on it for penance. <laughs> That's a severe fucking reaction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. These ladies are intense. Um, she wrote, and then after that, she was obviously like, (laughs) the book was like, and afterwards she was very ill. It's like, yeah. (laughs) She had a million Mm -hmm. infected wounds. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Um, she wrote that in Visions, Jesus would call her his Nightingale. This is why her nickname is the Nightingale of Helfta or the Nightingale of Christ. Um, choir girly. She had had visions for much of her life. I don't know if we know exactly when they began. For most of her life, she didn't tell anyone about them. When she did finally start talking about them, it was to her best friend in the convent, Gertrude, who would later become St. Gertrude the Great. 
And so this is when Gertrude and the other unnamed nun started writing the Book of Special Grace based on what Mechtild of Hackeborn was saying. There would be these long periods where she couldn't or didn't want to talk about her visions, um, either because she was sick from <laughs> covering her bed in broken glass, or um, and she was sick a lot of the time, um, or because she had this recurring fear, like this intrusive thought that the visions were just all in her head, like she was imagining all of them. Um and she gets really depressed about it in the book, sort of in these cycles of like doubt. She has a crisis of faith every so often. But her visions are really interesting. Um, one day while she was leading the choir, she recognized one of the voices in the choir as the voice of a nun who had recently died in the convent. And then she looked up and she saw her there in the choir and was able to talk to her telepathically. Um, she apparently was a little bit psychic. Um, when visitors or travelers would come to the convent to ask her to pray for them, she often knew what they were going to say before they said it. It's a little bit of Long Island medium energy going on. (laughs) (laughs) Mechtild of Hackeborn died at the age of 57 in 1298. It's written in the Book of Special Grace that the nuns heard her singing with them at her own burial, which is not at all scary or or weird. (laughs) Um, everybody is just very tensely everybody's like looking around like does anyone else we're just we're just continuing on with the requiem okay gonna ignore that all right (laughs) got it got it and then afterward they're like um so what the fuck was that (laughs) um gertrude the great wrote about mechtild's death calling her our chantress of blessed memory Gertrude herself was sick during Mechtild's last hours, and so she felt really guilty that she hadn't been able to, like, sit with her while she died and pray for her as much as she would have liked to. They were really close. Um, So Gertrude was praying after Mechtild's death, and she was visualizing the five wounds of Christ, as one does. (laughs) Um, And suddenly there appeared flowers growing from the wounds, and she heard Mechtild's voice comforting her. She's like, hey... Hey, girly. Hey, girl, I see you. I'm good. Um, From that point on, Gertrude was convinced that her friend was a saint, and she prayed to her often. She writes, quote, never was there anyone like her in our monastery. Alas, I fear there will never be another. So last but definitely not least, we move on to our second and final Gertrude of the day, who would become Saint Gertrude the Great. She was brought to the Abbey when she was five years old in 1261, so she's the youngest of the four women. When she arrived, Gertrude of Hackeborn was the abbess. She was 24 years old. Her younger sister, Mechtild, was also there already. She was 15, and Mechtild of Magdeburg was not there yet. She was 49 years old, so she was still working as a begin. Little Gertrude was entrusted to the care of Abbess Gertrude, and that's how she got her name. Um, Which suggests perhaps she was an orphan. No sources mention any type of family, which suggests she was definitely not from a noble family, because sources are not shy in mentioning how all the other women are from the nobility. 
So either a humble family or more likely no family at all. She kind of implies in her writings that her family is dead, but she doesn't like come out and say it. Gertrude started school at the Abbey when she arrived. Mechthild of Hackeborn sort of claimed her, and the two of them became very close despite their 10-year age difference. In 1266, Gertrude joined the community of sisters. Like the other nuns, she became very well-educated. From her writings, we can tell that she was familiar with the writings of the church fathers, like St. Augustine and St. Gregory the Great, as well as contemporaries like St. Bernard of Clairvaux and our favorite Thomas Aquinas. She was also clearly very familiar with rhetoric in general, and her Latin was very good. But all was not well with little Gertrude in her youth. She loved to study and learn, so she was happy to be in the Abbey for those things, but she didn't feel quite at home in the monastery. It seems like she didn't think she was cut out to be a nun. Um, She didn't think she could live up to the standards of the convent, and this made her feel alienated and depressed. She writes that in her teens and early 20s, she was a nun in appearance only. She went through the motions. She just wasn't feeling it. I think part of it was definitely loneliness. Um, She writes that she's glad she's able to hide these feelings from her sisters. She thinks no one can tell. She's like, I'm going through this awful, I'm feeling terrible all the time, but at least nobody knows. (laughs) It's like, baby girl, (laughs) don't you think if anyone knew that might actually (laughs) help you feel a little better? (laughs) Nope. Um, so she's not talking to anyone about it, which is not helping. Her worst bout of depression happened when she was 25. Same girl. (laughs) And then just a few months after that, everything changed. One day she's going about her business, talking to one of the older nuns and who shows up but Jesus. Jesus is a 16 year old in this vision, a hot young teen And he's basically (laughs) like, babe, don't be sad. You're here. You're on the path to salvation. It's you and me. He takes her hand and he tells her, I shall save you and deliver you. Do not be afraid. You have licked the dust with my enemies and have sucked honey among thorns. Now return to me and I shall make you drink of the torrent of my delights. I think she read a trashy novel before bed. (laughs) It's full romance now. It's a bodice ripper. Like her, the way she talks about (laughs) Jesus is Jesus is Fabio. (laughs) Period. I stand by that. Um, (laughs) This vision changed her life. It was very sexy. Completely changed the trajectory of her life. And it was only her first, so no longer depressed. She goes outside more, and she develops this deep love of nature. So her stories and metaphors are often based in nature, which I think is interesting. We can see, like, the progression from, like, her being cooped up inside because she didn't want to, like, even face the world, and then going outside and this just explosion of, like, nature imagery. Um. And one day she's in the garden, sitting by the fish pond, when she has this epiphany that the only thing that could make her happier in that moment was if she had a friend to share all of this with. 
And this is when she realizes, oh, Jesus can be my friend. Why didn't I think of that in the I first? Make friends. I can be friends with Jesus. Exactly. Oh. Oh, honey. Um. She, so she's like, if I'm really good and I try really, really hard, maybe Jesus will come be my friend and live with me. And Jesus is essentially like, knock, knock, bitch. I'm already here. <laughs> like in the vision, and she's like, oh shit, like jump scare. Um. Like, this is awkward. Like, this is when a friend comes over and you haven't, like, cleaned the house. That's what she compares it to. She writes, quote, Within the mire of my heart, I felt your presence. Oh, that the entire ocean were changed into blood to cover my head and thus drown the depths of the vileness where your unspeakable nobility has chosen to make your dwelling. Or that my heart might be taken out of my body and purified by burning coals, that it might be certainly not worthy, but less unworthy of your dwelling. She's going through it. I think she's in love with him. Yes. The theme of Gertrude's story is I want to fuck Jesus. <laughs> and now it's everybody's problem. And <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's the subtitle. And now it's everybody's <laughs> problem. The remix. I love it. I loved reading it. Um, shortly after this epiphany, Gertrude started writing down her visions when they happened. And these writings would eventually become her book, The Herald of Divine Love. There's also a contemporary biography of Gertrude, which mentions some miracles that her writings don't mention. So she's not out here talking about, like, here are all the miraculous things that I've done. Um, but other people were noticing. Um, these are not huge, life-changing miracles. They reminded me of the miracles that we see with Celtic monks, a lot of uh, weather stuff. Um, she prays that the rain will hold off until all the garden work is done one day. And then after the work, it's just like psh, downpour, like instant um, to the point where like people who are loitering in the garden just get like fucking drenched. <laughs> <laughs> um, and one day she's writing in the barn, which is so like Manic Pixie <laughs> Dream Girl vibes. <laughs> she's like, ah, the horses. Um and she loses her stylus in the haystack, basically needle in a haystack situation. She So she says out loud, Jesus, I'm never going to be able to find that thing. Can you just get it for me? And she reaches down and just plucks it up immediately. And the people watching are like... <laughs> You're like, did anyone fucking see that? Um, so those are the types of miracles, very small day to day type of stuff. She did also have the Catherine of Siena style invisible stigmata. And like Teresa of Avila, her heart was once pierced by a burning arrow while she was in prayer. So she has like the big, like capital S saint stuff, but she also has the everyday little moments that I love so much. In her book, Gertrude writes often about Mechtild of Hackeborn. The two remained best friends throughout their lives. I really like that they were so close. Um, one's an orphan, one's a rich girl, but they're besties. 
um, which to me is the magic of the monastery. Like the socials, the social classes don't really apply. It's kind of a special world. Um, Gertrude writes that Mechtild, quote unquote, knew the secrets of her soul. So they're definitely talking. They're exchanging information about the Jesus, the Jesus visions. Cheating on Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> She's cheating on Jesus. They're both cheating on Jesus with each other and on each other with Jesus. It's a threesome. They're a thruple. They should have just thruple it out. <laughs> Sometimes you got to just thruple it out. And I've always said that. <laughs> um, Gertrude's and Mechtild's visions are similar in a lot of ways. They both use musical and natural imagery, and they both have a focus on domestic scenes. I would say Gertrude has more of a gift for rhetoric, particularly metaphor. Her work is just like full of them. She's like, and this thing about God is like this thing. And, but it's also like this completely opposite thing. Um, whereas Mechtild is more like, um, it's more like imagery. It's more like colors and shapes and a little bit more mystical in that way. Um, Gertrude's feels more personal. In particular, she's fascinated by the idea of family life, which I found a bit sad. She writes about watching families come and visit their daughters and sisters who live in the convent and how she doesn't have a family, but she has Jesus and Jesus has become her father, her mother, her brother and sister, her spouse, (laughs) all of the above, all the categories, check, 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 select all that apply. Jesus. Um, I think that Gertrude's household metaphors are my favorite because they're so like, this is another human being. Like, this is not like she's a saint, but it's like, this is a woman doing chores who lived so long ago, but we have so much in common in our everyday lives. She's talking about like, when you're baking bread and you get the flour all over you. When you're like, you're washing dishes and the steam is like rising to your face. She talks about dyeing cloth with saffron and other things fall into the dye and they turn yellow and you're like, oh, fuck. Um, (laughs) Her cooking pots catching fire. Um, It's like, whoa, she's a real person. Um, Gertrude, like Mechtild, was also sick throughout her life. Both women had insomnia. It's a theme for today. Um, and some form of chronic illness. Gertrude most likely had hepatitis. Um, she knew that her death was coming. She saw it well in advance. Um, she had visions of her guardian angel that grew more and more elaborate. Like more people would enter the vision until like her whole bedroom would be full of like a panorama of like saints. And she'd be like, oh, fuck, I'm going to. Like, I'm just trying to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I wondered, are they, like, talking? Are they singing? Are they just, like, like staring? Turn around. <laughs> stage fright. Guys, I have to change. Can you just <laughs> look out the window at the fish pond or something? <laughs> and they're like. <laughs> 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 uh 
Um, yeah, she would envision Jesus drawing her into eternal life, quote unquote, as a dewdrop is absorbed by the sun. Um, in the last days of her life during mass at the elevation of the Eucharist, she had a vision of Christ opening his heart with both hands, like reaching into his chest, cracking open his heart with two hands. Um, and she knew that her illness was going to kill her. She's like, oh, this heart, the light from it is like drawing me to it. That means I'm going to die soon. Um, and she could not wait. She was pumped. She died in 1302, just a few years after her friend Mechtild at the age of 45 or 46. Um, so those are the four women. Like I mentioned, Mechtild of Hackeborn was never officially canonized, but regardless, the day to celebrate her is November 19th. Holler, your birthday. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Gertrude's feast day is November 16th, just a few days earlier. And those are the stories of the scholars, mystics, and saints of Helfta Abbey. What a weird collection of women. Yeah. Bunch of weirdos. They're all so unique. So strange. I want Mm -hmm. a sitcom with them. (laughs) Me too! That would be (laughs) so good. It would be... They're interesting enough that the ways that they would play off of each other (laughs) i think so too you have like the younger girlies who are kind of like a little gossipy and they're having their mystical visions and they're like chit-chatting about like jesus and how he's their husband and then like the abbess is like these fucking kids the abbess is like the dorothy of the group i think i think that Mechtild of Hackaborn is Rose. Gertrude is Blanche. Um, <laughs> and the older Vigine <laughs> is 100% Sophia. <laughs> she's always talking about Magdeburg. She's like, picture it, Magdeburg, 1221. And they're like, oh, geez. <laughs> anyway. The Golden Girls of Helfta Abbey. I love it. I'm there. I'm going to write it. Please do. I would read it. It would be fan fiction just for me. Audience of (laughs) one. But I will fucking love it. (laughs) (laughs) That would be very niche. I bet other people would be interested. Maybe not. I I bet they wouldn't. It's additional content to the podcast. Sarah's weird niche fan fiction. Mm-hmm. It's a supplement to the podcast. Thank you all so so much for listening. I had amazing. I had, eh, mm, mm, start over. I had an amazing time. I hope you did too. Absolutely, one hundred percent. And we'll see you next time. We love you so much. Thanks be to God. Blessed be.